Hi guys, my name is Keenan. I am one of the leaders at MAD, and today your boy is bringing you the news. Um, but uh, yeah, just before I do do that, I uh, hope that you guys are well. We've been praying for you guys a lot, and um, this video is literally just to encourage you guys to meet up with one another, meet up with us, um, and uh, basically just to continue sort of uh, keeping each other in, in good spirits during this time. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, I got a few dates. Garrett has advised me that there's going to be dates sort of in and around here. Uh, but I think it's on your left-hand side, and I think it's also in this, the description below. And um, now I feel like a YouTuber. Um, but yeah, just to bring you those quick uh, important dates, I don't know if you want to just jot them down. Uh, on Sunday, this Sunday, 31st of May, uh, after the service, we have grades 8 and 9s meeting up. Um, for you guys who are new, do not know what meetups is, it's basically just a cool time so that we get to um, chat, uh, just discuss sort of what's going on in your lives, discuss what's going on in our lives, and uh, just to have that uh, that Christian bond and, and connection. Uh, we have a few other dates as well. So it's Sunday the 7th of June, it's grade 10s and 12s. Uh, Sunday the 14th of June is grade 8 and 9s. And then Sunday the 21st of June is 10s and 12s as well. Um, and then on the 28th of June, which is quite interesting, we have a all grade social meetup. It's um, basically all your mates in different grades, literally just chatting it out um, and uh, just getting to know sort of what's going on in your lives, what's going on in our lives and uh, encouraging us, as I said before. Um, as I said, it's obviously a tough time. Um, and uh, just know that obviously we're here for you and um, that uh, we are waiting to sort of uh, get to know you a little bit better during this time as well. Um, so yeah, if you are new, enjoy the service and uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Cheers. Hi everybody, and welcome to our Illumination Teens Talk this morning. We are so glad that you've come and joined us. Uh, I'm gonna be really glad if you're still eating breakfast because that's awesome. I think when we go back from lockdown into normal church life, we're not gonna be able to eat breakfast at church, so enjoy it while you can. I'm rambling, so why don't I pray for us and we can get into today's talk. Father God, I do pray that as we come to the end of the book of Esther, that uh, you will change us. Um, that like you've done in the whole book of Esther, where you've really done some amazing and great transformations, that you will transform us. Um, that you will change us from the people we are into the people who you want us to be. Uh, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Even if you don't like those kind of makeover shows, um, you will still perhaps watch maybe just the end of an episode. Because although you don't like the whole episode, you can't deny that you love those last maybe 10, 15 minutes where you see the great transformation. Where they show you those kind of before and after scenes and you see that they went from looking like the back of a truck to looking like something amazing and gorgeous, right? You love those things. We all do, okay? And we specifically love those shows because they go from such an extreme to such an extreme. We wouldn't watch those shows if they went from fraught to decent. No, we, we love it because they go from fraught, fraught to fabulous. <laughs> okay, don't use that joke again. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You get the idea. In today's Last few chapters on Esther, in chapters 8 through 10, so we're coming to the end of our series, we're going to see that God is a God of great transformations. Um, and so if you if you haven't joined us for the previous talks on Esther, I'd suggest you go and listen to them. But let me give you a bit of a recap, okay? You've got this guy, Haman, okay? He's the bad guy in the story. 
He's second to the king Xerxes. Then you've got Xerxes. Xerxes, who is the ruler of most of the known world. And then you've got Mordecai. Um, or, as we call him, Uncle Morty. He's a nobody Jew who does not bow down to Haman. And in response, Haman threatens to not only kill Mordecai, but all the Jews. And this causes Mordecai and the Jews to mourn. And so we see in chapter 4 that um, many of them uh, put on sackcloth and ashes, which is to symbolize that they've lost everything. They feel worthless, for their lives are now coming to an end. Okay? Then you've got the Jews. They are the ones about to lose their lives. And Haman consults with the gods by casting lots and determining the month that the Jews should be killed, which is the month of Ada. He then goes to the king with this, and the king signs a decree with his binding signet ring that says that the Jews should be killed in the month of Ada. And then you've got Esther. Okay, Esther is also like Mordecai, a nobody Jew. But when the king does a nationwide beauty pageant to find his next queen, Esther wins. Now you might think, because she's queen... She can change Haman's decrees, but not so. The queen has very little power against the king, and that's something that you can see in chapter 1 if you go and read it. So Esther has to earn favor with the king. And so he does this by hosting, so she does this by hosting banquets, which are great parties. And we know, if you've been listening to any of the previous talks, uh, or if you look through the previous chapters in Esther, you will know that the king loves his parties. So if you want to get his good books, just host a couple of parties. And so she does this, and not only does she invite um, the king, but she also invites Haman. He's there, and, and she needs to do this. Um, so Sorry, she needs to do this because she needs to suck up to him. But the second reason why, the, why Queen Esther can't um, change the king's decrees uh, is because... Nobody is allowed to change a decree once the king has signed it with his signet ring. Not even the king himself is allowed to change things. Now last week we saw that after one of the banquets, Haman heads home and he sees Uncle Morty. This time Uncle Morty refuses to rise or tremble before Haman. So if you remember in the story... Uh, Mordecai was actually at the gate. He was lying in his ashes and his sackcloth. Um, and, and so what must have happened is uh, a banquet ends. Haman walks out. He sees Uncle Morty, and Uncle Morty doesn't get up from probably lying on the ground. And so because he refuses to rise and he refuses to tremble before the greatness of Haman, Haman gets angry. And to cut a long story short, he decides he wants to kill Mordecai and hang him by hanging him at the gallows. And this is where the story takes a twist, as Black taught us last week, because at this point we see God's biggest intervention in the story. Up until now he's had some small intervention, but now it's clear he does a massive intervention. Because on the same night that Haman decides he wants to kill Mordecai at the gallows, King Xerxes is at home. And he has trouble sleeping. 
And so what he does in his troubled sleep is he gets some of his officials to come uh, to read some official documents. And when they're reading these documents, one of the stories that the documents tells is the story of how Mordecai actually prevented a massive attack on King Xerxes' life. In other words, Xerxes hears a story being told to him of how Mordecai prevented an assassination. And so on the night that Haman is going, I want to take this guy out. I want to throw him on the gallows. King Xerxes is thinking, this guy is amazing. This Mordecai guy, I want to lift him up. I want to like rejoice in him as much as I possibly can. And so something quite funny happens is the next day um, Haman goes to go and visit the king um, to, to tell him, hey, I want to try and crucify this Mordecai guy. I want to try and kill him at the gallows. And as he gets to the king, the king goes, guess what? I have this guy in my kingdom who I think should be exalted and praised. And then he says, how can I exalt and praise this guy, Hammond? Give me some advice. You're my second in command. You're my, you're my wingman. Tell me how we can do this. And Hammond, in his massive ego and his pride, remember he gets, he gets upset for somebody who doesn't tremble before him. He's got a big ego. He's a proud guy. And, uh, and Hammond thinks, well, it must be me that the king is talking about. So Hammond says, well, I think you should parade him around town. Let him ride your horse. And the king goes, that's a great idea. Hammond, you can send Mordecai around the, <laughs> around the city and you can put him on my horse. Can you imagine how bleak Hammond is feeling at this point? where he suddenly realizes that it's actually Mordecai who the king wants to honor. And this is the very guy that he wanted to kill. His big ego, I can pretty much assure you, was deflated. And that was one of the big points from the talks last week. But here's where we finally get to our part of the story. And as we go through our part of the story, I want you to see how God completely reverses things. How he turns things completely on their head. And it starts with another banquet from Esther. This time, Esther feels it's now right to tell the king what Haman has actually been doing. So she speaks up. And I'm going to take it from chapter 7, verse 4. It says this. This is King, this is Queen Esther speaking. She says to the king, We have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King uh, Azarus, or King Xerxes, uh, you can use that name interchangeably. Then King Azarus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now, you can picture at this point, it's the banquet. Remember, Esther, Haman, and the king are all together. You can picture Esther just pointing at Haman, going, A foe and enemy! This wicked Haman! Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So to cut a long story short, we see in verse 10 that Haman is finally executed. And he's executed on the same gallows that he prepared for Mordecai because the king is so angry at the fact that Haman could do this that he puts Haman on the gallows. And it's at this point that we need to see the first great reversal in the story. God takes a guy who is the second most powerful person in the known world at the time who has everything. And God makes him nothing. 
he not only loses his power, his great prestige, but he loses his life. And he loses it in the most humiliating way. Because the very thing that he developed to kill Mordecai, those gallows, by the way, those gallows were probably a massive spike that they probably stuck somebody on, so it's not a great way to die. That very thing that he created to destroy Mordecai is the very thing that kills him. It's like in some of those old Roadrunner cartoons. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but basically every cartoon consists of a Roadrunner bird who never stops running and a coyote who is hell-bent on stopping this Roadrunner. The coyote sets up various traps, and every time the roadrunner either runs straight through them or around them. Now often what happens is the coyote comes to check why the trap hasn't worked, and he ends up getting caught in the same trap that he set up. And we find this funny, because it's ironic. The same trap that he set up, that he pours his energy into, that he pours his money into, his time that he gets all excited about, ends up trapping him. It's a great reversal. The proud and the mighty Haman, who was telling everybody how great he was in chapter 5, has now been brought alive. But now look what happens in the next section. So look at chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Azarus, uh, or Xerxes, remember, remember the name is interchangeable, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what was what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So on the same day that Haman is executed, Queen Esther is given all that Haman owned, and in chapter 5, we actually see that Haman owned quite a lot. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 11. And Haman recounted to them, which is, he was talking to his friends and his wife at the time. Uh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. So you can see that Haman had a lot. He had a lot of money. Uh, he had a really high position in Xerxes' kingdom. And all of this gets given to Queen Esther. And Esther decides to share it with Uncle Morty. So both Esther and Uncle Morty switch places with Haman. Haman has now been made low, so low that he's been um, humiliated, killed in a humiliated way. Humiliating way, he's been uh, executed. And Esther and Uncle Morty are lifted up. They are blessed. Now, there's one last thing that needs to happen for the story to get to have a, a very happy ending. The decree that the king signed to kill all the Jews is still going ahead. Because once the king signs something, remember, it cannot be changed or altered, not even by the king himself. So Queen Esther and Mordi come before the king to issue a new decree, one that says if anyone decides to come up against the Jews, the Jews can fight back. And if they fight back and win, they get to plunder the houses of the people that try to go against them in the first place. So plunder means basically that they run into the houses and they just take everything uh, out of those people's homes. 
and they can take it for themselves. So this decree was designed uh, to make the Persians think twice about trying to take on the Jews. Because once the decree was signed, some people would still try to take out the Jews, but hopefully this decree, because it was so hectic and so harsh, would make them think twice. But actually, what ended up happening was a lot of people still tried to take on the Jews. Um, and the Jews ended up winning against them, and they ended up gaining their riches. Which means the Jews moved from being people who were going to be defeated and killed to being people who were moved right up here. To being people who would be blessed. So the story ends with the Jews partying away because God took them from, as Queen Esther said earlier, being sold and on the brink of execution to not just being normal people, but being wealthy people. In fact, the party that they had became an annual one. So once a year, the Jewish people would come together to celebrate the fact that God took them from being sold unto death to free and blessed, from being lowly to being people who were exalted. And they ended up calling this uh, celebration Purim, which is taken from the word pure, uh, P-U-R, which is the Hebrew word for casting lots. Now remember way back in chapter 3, we saw that Haman cast lots, or he enacted pur to determine the date that the Jews would be executed. Now I'm not sure what the process involved. It, I, I think it has something to do with a kind of dice that perhaps had numbers on it, and they would throw it a couple of times, and if a, if a certain number kept occurring, um, they would... They would say that that was a sign from the gods. Uh, at least I think it's, it's something along those lines. It's something similar to that. But anyway, it was definitely something that would be used for them to determine what the gods were saying. And they were able to look at this casting lots and go, this is the date that the gods say we should kill the Jews. But because God overturned the decision from Pure, because God defeated the decision, or God overturned the decision made by the gods of the Persian people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, would now celebrate a day where Pur became Purim, where God overshadowed and defeated and overturned the gods of the Persians. They celebrate because God has not only taken them from being nothing to normal, or average, or okay, kind of like we saw in the, the opening of this uh, sermon. He takes them from being radically nothing to radically something, from fraught to fabulous. Okay. So what does this mean for us? Well, here, here's, something, here's the thing. What, what I find quite amazing about the story is that the pinnacle of the story, the turning point, happens at an execution. And it's the execution of Haman. Because up until this point, we haven't really seen God really do much. But the moment the turning point happen, happens, God shows up in a huge and mighty way. First, Haman is defeated. The big enemy is being brought low. God's people are lifted up. 
Esther is lifted up. Mordecai is lifted up. God works in a big and powerful way. And that all happens at the moment of an execution. Okay? That is the turning point of the story. And the reason I find this so amazing is because if you look at the New Testament, you see that the the turning point of Christianity happens at a device which brings about execution. The part of Christianity where God takes those who are completely weak and completely low and exalts them and lifts them high is at a cross. So it says in Romans 5, verse 6 to 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, our God is a God who is full of grateful, great reversals. One of them happens at the cross of Jesus. For at the cross, we see something that is incredible. We see a God who has made himself low to become a man. And as a man, he took on all our sin, everything that we should be punished for, and he hung in our place. He was like Haman in that he was great. And believe it or not, he was like Haman in his arrogance. For at the cross, yes, before the cross, Christ was sinless. There was no arrogant bone in his body. But when he was on the cross, he took on our arrogance. He took on our sin. He took on our self-righteousness. He took on our pride and our evil. And just like God brought Haman down for his pride, so God took down Jesus. God displayed his full wrath and his full anger on Jesus. So Jesus dies in our place. And just like we move from that end of chapter 7, where Haman is crucified, into chapter 8, where Esther and Uncle Morty are lifted up. So in the New Testament, we see something amazing. We see that because Jesus has died on the cross, we become exceptionally blessed. And if you want to go look at the um, what kind of blessing we get, you've got to go and look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 to 14. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but if you want to go and read it for yourself, it's the passage on blessing, but it starts off like this. It says in verse 3, it says, Bless, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to mention those blessings. He says we're blessed because uh, we're adopted as sons into into Christ Jesus. It says we've been uh, predestined from before the world began. And it tells us ultimately that we are blessed to become one day completely united under Christ himself. And there are other blessings that are mentioned in the passage, and I don't have the time to go through that passage in detail, but the one thing I need you to see if you go and look at that passage is the amount of times the word in him occurs. The word in him is referring to Jesus. And so basically, in fact, if you count it, it counts up to, I think, maybe 11 or 12 times. It says in him, in Christ. So for such a few verses, to have that word, that phrase repeated multiple, multiple, uh, times must mean that the author is trying to tell us something. 
And the author is trying to tell us something. He's trying to say this to us, that our biggest blessing is the fact that we are in Jesus. That is our biggest blessing. And the rest of the blessings that are mentioned in that passage flow from that. So if our biggest blessing is that we are in him, then what we need to realize is when God takes us from being nothing into something, he blesses us by bless, by making us in him. Now it's at this point of the story that you might think to yourself, Shaq's Gareth, well, I mean, the Jews, they got blessed with material things, right? They got some, like, they were made rich. <laughs> That's how God blessed them. Like, you're telling me that our biggest blessing is not money, it's not wealth, it's being blessed in Jesus, it's being made in Jesus. Come on, Gareth. <laughs> Surely we get something that's better than that. And in some ways you'd almost be right to feel this way because sometimes we look at God and we go, okay, God, it's awesome to be blessed in Jesus, but man, Lord, I, I want to get some kind of material blessing in as well. And you might be a person that, that thinks, well, I don't necessarily want like tons and tons of riches. I just, I just like need enough money for my, my family to survive. Or, Lord, bless me. Maybe don't bless me with material things, but bless me with, like, relational things. Lord, I'm struggling with friendships right now. Can't you just bless me with that? Or, uh, Lord, my face is actually, please, I need an update. Or, Lord, my family needs a house. Or, Lord, my, my parents need work. Here's the thing. It's great to pray for these kind of material blessings. Or if you need help in your relationship, it's great. It's great to pray for those things. But if you see those things as the ultimate blessing and you don't see Jesus or you don't see having Jesus or being in Jesus as your greatest blessing, then let me tell you something you are missing out. If you don't see, if, if your Christianity is all about just asking God for things, but not actually having God himself, then really what you're doing is you're actually just worshipping yourself. And you're using God as a servant to serve you. He's like your genie. You're the boss. And he's he's not the boss. In fact, I think in some ways we tend to treat God a bit like a slave. But that's not the worst thing. Well, that actually, no, that probably is the worst thing. But there's something else that you're also not doing. You're actually missing out. You're missing out on the joy of having a relationship with the God of the universe. See, I became a Christian uh, at 13. And there was something I did then, which I kind of do now, but I don't do it as well as I did back then. See, at 13, I prayed for everything. Now, I didn't know much about Christianity, so I probably prayed for the wrong things, but I prayed. And I didn't, I, I didn't have specific times of the day where I'd pray for like an hour or two, like some people do. No, I would pray at like increments throughout the day in small little bits. For example, if I was walking to the movies with my friends and friends said something mean, I'd quickly pray, Lord, give me the strength to deal with this. And when we got to the movies, I prayed, Lord, please let us choose a movie I actually want to watch. And in the movie, I pray, Lord, please help me to enjoy this movie. It sounds silly. 
But if you had to ask 13-year-old Gareth if he'd prefer amazing riches over his friendship with God, he'd probably say, I prefer God. Like I, I said, I prayed for anything and everything. If I went on a date, I'd silently pray that the girl would like me. <laughs> and I'd pray for the confidence to hold a hand. And I'd pray when I went to subjects at school that I hated, and I'd pray that the Lord would help me enjoy them. Now these prayers are mostly selfish. I'm not saying this is how you should pray. But there is something to be learned from 13-year-old Gareth. And that is this. He treasured his relationship with God more than anything else. If he had to give up God to get a date with a girl, he'd be tempted to give up God. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't give up God for social status, for good exam results, for money, for better health, etc. Why? Because his friend was the God of the world. Think about this. Can a girlfriend be with you 24-7? No. She may say she'll always be there, but in reality it's not humanly possible. Can a boyfriend know you inside and out? They may say they do, but in reality they don't. Can a fancy car save you from death? No, it can't. Can good exam results Love you, no matter what you do. Can a great social status know your future? Can the right house give you the purpose for your life? No, none of this can happen except through God. And let me ask you this. Can anything else in the world give you the joy that only God can give you? See, everything in life, if it's not give, if it's not God, it can only give you joy that's fleeting. That's short. But God's joy lasts for eternity. Friends, if you want a God who just gives you material things and solves your immediate problems, you are missing out. You are missing out on a God who is always looking after you, who knows you inside and out, who saves you from death, who loves you no matter what, who knows the future, who gives you purpose and fills you with undying joy. This God is freely available to you and wants you to be with him, to have a relationship with you. All you've got to do is just let him. Don't be those people who prefer material blessings. And a God who solves immediate problems. That's not the God we want. Yes, we do want to pray for those things. And we do want a God who helps us. But what is great, a greater blessing is to have a God who wants to be friends with us. A God who walks with us. A God who blesses us by putting us in Him. Now lastly, there are some people here watching this video. Who perhaps you feel like you don't need blessing. You are pretty happy with how things are. So let me share with you something. I've been to Disney World. I was really great. Some generous lady, she gave me free tickets, and the tickets were 1,400 rand each. So, <laughs> so it was amazing. But let me tell you something. Disney World is incredible. Okay, every ride is so detailed that even the queues that you wait in have like animated robots that greet you. 
I mean, one of the rides I'll just quickly tell you was one I love was called the Tower of Terror. The detail that these guys went into, I mean, they literally built a 13-story hotel, okay, just for one ride. It was, it's massive. When you come, you can see it when you're coming into Disney World. It's, it's just gigantic. And every inch of that hotel is detailed to look like an old historic haunted hotel. Then when you get into the lobby, which is the queue, this beautiful lobby, it's immaculate. And there's people that are acting as, um, the concierges and the administration of the hotel. And all around you is paintings that are all dedicated to a story that the writer is trying to tell you, which is a story of a family who have been brutally murdered. Everything. They have like glass cabinets with little pictures in it and stuff that the people wrote. They go to the nth degree, but they go through such detail that the ride just is so much more mind-blowing. And it's not just that ride, but every ride they do is like that. I mean, on that specific ride, was so cool. You get into this, like, elevator thing, and then they take you up in this elevator to the 13th floor, and for some reason, the elevator suddenly breaks loose and starts sliding through the floor, and it feels like it's floating. And then you just see all these ghosts, and the ghosts look, look so real, they actually freak you out. But all this detail goes into it that makes Disney World this incredible place. Now, I've been to Disney World, but I've also been to Goldreef City, okay? And let me tell you something. Goldreef City is pretty good. It's really decent. In terms of uh, theater, like uh, what do you call it, theme parks, it's great. But let me tell you, it's no Disney World. It's not even close. Now, if if you were a person that went to Gold Reef City. And then I came to you, and I said, I've got free tickets for you to go to Disney World. Would you say yes, or would you say no? Chances are you'd say yes. And when I, when I, when I say free, I mean literally, I will pay not just for your Disney tickets, I'll pay for your flights. I'll pay for, I'll look after things to make sure that you can go. Like, I'll look after your family. I will uh, make sure that all your projects are seen to at school, that your teachers are cool with this. All of that, I'll make sure that that happens so that you can go. So there's really no barrier between you and going to Disney World. Would you say no and say, no, I'm rather, I'm kind of happy with my experience with Gold Reef City, thanks. I don't need anything great. No, you probably wouldn't, Okay. Now, here's the thing. Saying no to Jesus is similar to saying no to Disney World. The joy that is found in Jesus is unparalleled. In fact, my illustration fails a bit because the joy of Disney is fleeting. It only lasts for a short time, but the joy of knowing Jesus and being his friend is eternal. And many of you will feel like you are happy with your life. Your life is Gold Reef City. Yet I'm saying to you something. There's a far, far more joyful life that is out there. There's a Disney world, and it's free. It's been given to you through the grace of God. Jesus has died for you and given you a relationship with him for absolutely free. You don't have to pay anything because he's already paid it on the cross. As we close, we've gone through this entire book of Esther. 
And although God is not mentioned in the book, he shows up in a powerful way by flipping things upside down. Let him take your life. Let him move you from being weak to being blessed. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much that you are such a great and powerful and amazing God. We thank you that you are the God of great reversals, the God of great transformations. Father, won't you take us and transform us? Won't you take us from being those who are completely weak and helpless to being completely blessed in you? Father God, I pray that we do not try and run after material or situational blessings. But Father, I pray that we run to be more like you and to be more with you and to be more in you, that we may grow in the joy that only you can provide. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. And uh, if you're in one of the grades that Keenan mentioned, we'll be seeing you in a few minutes at 11 o'clock uh, on Zoom. I look forward to seeing you. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers.